Hey everybody, official screenwriting podcast number 15. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'm going to talk about Skyfall, and then I'm going to pull out some interesting things that I see in some of the blacklist scripts that I've been catching up on. So, first up, Skyfall. You know, the interesting thing about this film, some people have made a lot of comparisons to the Batman franchise. I, I think that's fair, but I, I also think that, you know, superhero movies are all pretty much the same in their own way, or they all have rampant similarities in their setup and the way that they're executed, and James Bond is definitely that. He is a real-life superhero. And the things that they've tried to play with in these last Daniel Craig films, which I, I think the first one, um, Casino Royale, was great. I really love Skyfall. I did not see Quantum of Solace. But they're trying to make him more human, and they're trying to make him edgier, and trying to make him less pristine. Um, the, the opening sequence is a standard James Bond chase action sequence. The bad guy has a list uh, or a file that reveals the identities of many, many undercover operatives, and James Bond's got to get it back. And of course, they chase him through a crowded market. There's a car chase. Then they jump onto motorbikes, and it's a motorcycle chase that leads them onto a train, and then it's a chase on top of a train. Um, and this sequence goes on for quite a while. But the entire time, the tension is being built because we're cut in our cutting. We're cutting back and forth between a couple of characters. James Bond has an assistant, Eve, uh, who we'll later learn is Eve Moneypenny. And she is helping him along the way. And she is in direct contact with M back at MI6 headquarters. And eventually, M has to make the decision because Eve has a gun on these two guys fighting on top of a train, James Bond fighting a bad guy. The bad guy's got this incredibly important document, and M makes the call. Take the shot. There's a very good chance James Bond is going to be shot and killed, and she's, uh, she's willing to take that risk. And that's a huge thing. You know, we have this character who's seen as sort of a, uh, a mother figure, you know, saying, yeah, take James Bond out if necessary. This greater good is more important than my personal feelings and relationship with James Bond. That is a huge moment. And the cool thing about it is that this then plays in to the villain's motivation. It's not just a great opener, which it is. I was like, wow, um, because James Bond does get shot. He's presumed dead. He hides out for a couple of months. And then there's a terrorist attack that attacks MI6 and he comes out of hiding to reveal that no, he's not dead, and he is reporting for duty. Um, the thing here, though, is that this opening scene is connected to the villain's motivation and backstory, and that's what I love about it. Because the villain, Silva, is played by Javier Bardem, and he, before James Bond, he was James Bond. He was her pet agent. He was somebody who she trusted, and who he looked up to M as a mother. And at a point in time, uh, on a mission, she made the call to sacrifice Silva in order to save six other agents and to preserve the Chinese takeover of Hong Kong or something like that. Um, so there was a greater good that was served by her sacrificing him. But of course, that's little uh, comfort to him because he was not only captured by not, not his own fault, not operational mistake, um, but he was not only captured, but then tortured for like six months and basically driven insane. So his goal 
is you know he's he's basically spent his time building up this you know crazy criminal organization that can do anything that can influence elections that can change stock markets that can basically wreak havoc in order to put money in his pocket or just to create chaos for fun but his ultimate goal is to get M back to kill her to kill Judy Dench's character and i think that again it's that it's that similarity between that opening decision that M has to make and usually it would be the hero making that decision but it's okay that a supporting character is making it because it ties directly in with Silva's backstory and it also does this other thing which I think we can look at which is it provides us with a villain that is equal to Bond or better you always want to do that you always want to have a villain who's got more power than the hero because otherwise we look at these heroes as it almost is the only way that we can sort of provide balance to our suspension of disbelief. And this, the reason that he's equal to Bond is because he has all the same training as Bond. He has all the same, you know, sort of, he has this also relationship with M or had this relationship as the top MI6 operative. And now he's operating without a code. And that's important because Bond operates without a code, except there is a code. He has a license to kill. But it's that does not you know that sort of also suggests best judgment on behalf of the person who's given it it's an incredible trust that a country gives to an operative to say we trust you to make the decisions as to you know life and death and this villain is not restrained by a lot of the ethical uh elements that are required the other thing that the movie does is it takes it makes it a point that James Bond is not ready to come back into service. Remember that he nearly died as a result of this gunshot. He went basically uh, rogue, or he went, he didn't go rogue, because I guess going rogue would suggest that you're doing things on your own. Um, he didn't do that. He just was hiding out in on a tropical island somewhere, healing his wounds, drinking a lot, uh, having sex with a lot of women, I guess, and you know just sort of enjoying his time off of the job treating it like a vacation and when he comes back they say oh you have to go through all the training again to you know or you have to go through a series of tests in order to be declared fit for duty and he does all these things he takes a physical test or multiple physical tests and then he sits down with a psychiatrist and m says to him okay you've passed the test you know here's your badge you're back on the you know you're back on the force and the the thing that Silva will then later point out, because Silva gets access to all their computer files, he says, by the way, um, you failed all of those tests. She put you back on because that served M's interest. She wanted you back in there, but she doesn't care about you. She lied to your face, and here's the proof. And she, you know, he shows Bond. He's sort of trying to turn Bond in that, in that scene, and it doesn't work, of course. Um, but, you know, we have a we have a villain with with strings to pull who's omni powerful if you will he can get inside of mi6 he has all the training of james bond he knows he even says at one point because james bond is put in a situation i'll talk about in a minute and he gets, says i know that you're thinking back to your training right now and that's something that uh, somebody will do you know no matter how crazy the situation is uh, somebody who is trapped will think back to their training. What are the things that I'm supposed to look for in terms of the weaknesses and so forth? Um, so it shows that Silva is totally sort of programmed the same way. He's just a step beyond. And I think that makes him an incredibly powerful villain, one worth watching. 
and and by the way the end of the film pretty much comes down to like a straw dogs ending i talked about straw dogs on a different podcast and i talked about the opening of straw dogs this is basically assault on a castle or assault it's not it's not really a castle skyfall is the house that james bond grew up in and he brings M there and there is a big showdown where uh silva comes in with a helicopter and a lot of men basically just to kill james bond and M. And it's a fight for survival inside of a house um, and on the grounds of the house. It's a very sort of simple, stripped-down approach. So I want to talk real quickly about something else we see in Bond. That's, maybe I've talked about this before. I'm going to talk about it again. The importance of games in movies. The importance of games in movies. Games can be used on the plot level uh, or on the logline level. And think about how many movies are surrounded around games or a bet um or you know a race is that all sports movies are based on games per, you know um but but i'm talking here about more specifically how it's used at the in the scene level because one of the things the characters can do to test each other or to keep things interesting so that these characters can get expository information out is to play a game um we see this in the skyfall movie because there's right after they sort of have their introduction we get silva's backstory he brings james bond outside and there's a bunch of guys covering james bond with guns so james bond is totally on his own here and the silva has tied up uh Severine, who is the woman who led James Bond to Silva. She's been working for Silva since she was a teenage prostitute, I think was the backstory. And he has her tied up, and I, I forget if she's gagged or not, um, but he basically takes a shot glass, pours whiskey into it, and puts it on top of her head. And James Bond is forced to basically play, play the William Tell game. The I'm putting something on top of the, the person's head, and you've got to shoot it, and we're going to go back and forth. Um, and this provides a lot of suspense because she can't move. Um, and Bond, one of the things that they've set up with his injury, remember, this is all set up in payoff because James Bond was shot in that opening sequence. Uh, his wounds have not totally healed and he failed the gun test which we see we see that he's having trouble hitting his target in the test itself but of course remember he's told that he passed and now that is undermined because in the scene directly beforehand Silva says look at these scores you did not pass any of this shit um, and now he is forced to uh, play William Tell upon the head of a woman with her life at risk with the woman that he just slept with and that he sort of cares about as much as James Bond can care about a woman that he just met. Um, but a woman who's done something for him because she did him the favor of bringing him to Javier Bardem. So we've now set up this incredibly difficult situation because he now doesn't even trust himself and he knows that his shot is off and he has this injury and he has to shoot her because six other guys with guns are have guns pointed at him. Um, so that's that's an interesting setup and it's a game you know again it's this game of i'm going to take a shot you're going to take a shot and how this and what does he do does he go for the shot glass does he shoot wide 
all these questions that we have, or does he still believe in his own abilities and does he end up shooting her? We, we have so many options for that first shot. That's tension right there. That is great tension. And then it's Silva's turn. So like Bond has to figure out, you know, hey, if I don't shoot this shot glass off her head, Silva can just come in right after me and shoot her in the head. Like, so he has this sort of control over it. What he doesn't have control over is his arm. And that, again, is what creates great tension. And of course, Bond shoots wide. He does not uh, end up hitting the, the shot glass on her head. And Silva comes in, shoots the girl. I don't even think it sort of references whether or not he tried or not. But the girl gets shot. The glass falls to the ground. And, you know, that is the use of a game. And we see games at the logline level. Um, and we also see games in the scene level, which we just saw there. And again, think of the sixth sense. Remember the scene where Bruce Willis comes to Cole's house? Uh, and we see the mom sitting there and Bruce Willis is sitting there and the whole setup is that we don't realize they're not talking. Um, and Bruce Willis says, you know, has questions for Cole, the kid who's seeing ghosts and says, well, let's play a game. I'll ask you questions. And if I'm right, you take a step towards me. If you're wrong, you take a step back. And if you make it all the way to the chair, then you'll sit down and we'll have a nice conversation. And he asks Cole questions and he says, wow, you got that watch from your father. Um, or, you know, he has like a whole bunch of questions. And of course, and that's the tension in the scene because there really isn't any tension. It's two people having a conversation and we don't know what the stakes are. We don't know what the situation between Bruce Willis and this kid is. All we know is that Bruce Willis is trying to lure him into a therapy, you know, a therapy discussion. And the way that he does it is through a game. But we can also see, so that's the entire setup of that scene, but I watched Wreck-It Ralph. Um, Wreck-It Ralph, by the way, is wonderful. It's on Redbox now. I highly, I think it's one of the greatest screenplays I've come across in the last year. And that's the type of screenplay that is only possible when you have 70 people working on it and a ton of animators coming up with fun ideas. But one of the things that Wreck-It Ralph does, there's a scene very early on when he comes into the Sugar Rush world where he meets the Sarah Silverman character, Vanellope, and they're both in this candy cane tree and the metal that he's been going after is hanging off a top branch and she's hanging on a lower branch and Ralph is on a lower branch and they're talking and he's got to make his way up the tree and they both have the same goal. They both want this metal. And when she sees the metal, she says, I'll race you for it. And it turns a scene where it's just very static. They're sitting here on the bran lower branches of a tree. The thing he wants, his goal is at the top of the tree um, and, you know, we get, but we still need to have some conversation about what is this world? How is it operating? What, who are you? What, you know, stuff like that. Um, and he lies to her initially. Uh, so a lying is definitely one way that a, a character can create some tension because we wonder if he's going to get caught and if the other person's going to catch on if they do, how they work their way out of that. But at the, you know, once that expository information gets out there, she says, I'll race you for it. And suddenly we've created a moment of, I mean, that sort of tension in some way, it's action, it's suspense, it's who's gonna get to this thing first. And it turns a conversation into action. So that's how that game operates in Wreck-It Ralph. And of course, there's tons of other games going on. I mean, Wreck-It Ralph is all about video games. So there's other game stuff going on there. Maybe next week I'll talk a little bit more at length about the types of games, although it might be a little too complicated. I th I'm gonna scratch that. Um, I may talk about Wreck-It Ralph next week, but there's too much game stuff to talk about it uh, in terms of, well, how does the game interact with the story? The story is a game, sort of. So. Let's uh, move on. 
Uh, quick reminder that you can hire me in uh, March, if you're listening to this, 299 bucks to read your script. I take notes on the PDF, I make comments, then I write up a Word document, and then we talk about this. Uh, we talk about it for as long as we need to. Usually it's about an hour and a half, two hours. If it's three hours, I'm happy to do that. The more advanced your script is, the more time I spend talking to you because the more things we have to take into consideration and the more work we can then do on individual scenes. And of course, that's the greatest thing, and I've said this a lot, the further along a writer is, the more you can do work with them because at that point we're not talking about, well, if this thing worked, what would it look like? You have the skeleton of a script and that's really where the work begins. And your goal as a writer, and this is why I write a book called The Starter Screenplay, your job as a writer is to build a skeleton that works, that operates properly and once you have done that then we can talk about okay what does you know what kind of clothes are we going to dress this up in basically talking about the individual things whereas if the script doesn't work to begin with then we're just sort of left with a well you could do this or that or this might turn it into a movie or that might turn it into a movie but remember that all writers only have a couple of bites of the apple and when you hear about people who do 20 drafts of a script and stuff like that going into production, you're talking about different drafts that are operated by different people. You're talking about the, the actor or the director giving them notes. And at that point, you're doing a rewrite in order to satisfy somebody else's prerogatives, which is a totally different exercise. Um, but in the beginning, your job is to create a skeleton that works so that you have one, two, or three rewrites left in you where you are the major sort of decision maker. Because when I'm working with writers, you know, the thing is I'm not an executive telling you what to do and paying you. I have to sort of couch everything in, these are your options, these are the things you can do. And, you know, you, the writer still makes the ultimate decision. You can also go to starterscreenplay.com, get an autographed copy of my book with free shipping. And again, that is personally autographed to you. And, you know, if you've read the book, please leave a review on, on Amazon. Just go three sentences. That's all you need. Okay, I'm going to talk about some blacklist scripts now. I loved Jojo Rabbit. I'm not going to get... I, I am going to talk about one little thing in Jojo Rabbit. It's by uh, Taika uh, Waititi, I think is how you pronounce her name. And, or I don't even know if it's a guy or a girl. But uh, Taika, Taika, whatever it is, did an amazing job with this script. Here's the logline. After being severely hurt by a grenade at a Hitler youth camp, a prideful and nationalistic 10-year-old boy discovers that his mother is hiding a 15-year-old Jewish girl in their home. This logline is wonderful. Now again, is it sort of a studio, American studio-friendly concept? No, because you have a 10-year-old boy. It takes place in World War II. He's, by the way, a German Nazi. Um, you can't get any farther away from what a studio is looking to make. However, there's a big world out there now in terms of financiers. And, you know, I've always suggested, and this is why I wrote a book called The Starter Screenplay, which again, in my book, if you haven't read it, it's not about, this is how you write a script. It's about identifying the elements that are necessary in order to sell to a Hollywood studio. And the thing is, there's lots of these little independent financiers or international financiers who are out there. The problem is that they're often hard to get to look at your material. Um, and you have to know who's looking for what or who, who has money at that point in time. And, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I need a producer to do that. Really what you need is an agency to do that, to know who's got money in the, con because that's what agencies do and, and managers to some extent. Their job is to know at any given point who's got money to spend and what are they looking for and how do we service that. So the problem with a script like Jojo Rabbit, if you're trying, if you're at the very beginning of it, is 
you know, I would say to somebody who doesn't have an agent, first of all, actually, this log line works so well, and it has such a wonderful upside-down opposite quality. He's nationalistic, prideful, and he's been hurt by a grenade, so he's ailing in some way. So he really believes in his cause, and then his mother is doing the opposite of this cause. And there's life and death suggested in this because his mom's hiding a Jew in the attic, and we know what that means. Um, so, you, you know, we know that a lot of people are going to die if, if this secret is revealed. So we have a secret inside of an upside, great upside-down quality in also life and death. This is really a lot of great stuff in this one uh, sentence logline. Um, but again, you know, I will warn this, that if you're going to go for something like this, and you should know that this is not American studio friendly, although I'm sure that this writer has been courted by every studio, and I don't know what the writer's up to because I haven't looked it up yet, but, um, you know, this is studio level screenwriting. And that's essentially what you need to deliver, because if you deliver something that doesn't quite work, but it's say something as marketable as miscongeniality, a studio may buy it because they love the concept. They love the upside down. We, I, I love the upside down, and I'm sure you did too, of this log line that I read to you. The thing you have to keep in mind though is that this is, you know, you have to deliver a four star A plus script. And that's not the easiest thing for all writers to do early on. It's a big weight to put on your shoulders and that's what the starter screenplay is about it's about not putting that weight on your shoulders at the very beginning um or again if you have to write something that you know doesn't fit inside the system but you feel strongly about then do it um but move on you know spend three months on it spend four months on it don't spend four years and um you know the other thing about this script is that there is a basis i don't hey i'm talking off the top of my head here i don't know exactly what it is but there is a basis for this sort of concept of a kid who is not yet a teenager who has an imaginary friend and who sees the world in this really strict way and then through circumstance basically has his world turned upside down and is forced to confront everything that he thought that he knew and that's about sort of that that walk into teenage maturity um, you know, Bogus was very similar to that. The uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Gerard Depardieu, Haley Osmond movie that was directed by Norman Jewison, which is very interesting if you are one of those people who's actually Netflixing and looking at the movies I suggest. I think you'll like Bogus. It's a very good screenplay. Um, but of course, it had no, you know, commercial appeal whatsoever. Uh, and, and was created or was filmed at a time a long time ago, back when they made movies like that, intense character dramas. It was supposed to be a comedy. I don't think that comes across. Anyway, I'm just going to move on. But here's the thing where, you know, if you notice, the imaginary friend did not make it into the logline. Guess who JoJo's imaginary friend is? I'm going to read it. JoJo sits alone on a log, sobbing to himself. He looks up to see a little butterfly flitting around by his feet. And then a voice comes from behind. Voice, off screen. Poor JoJo, what is wrong? JoJo turns around. It is none other than his fantasy friend, Adolf Hitler. Jojo brightens at the sight of his hero. Hi, Adolf. Adolf takes a seat. This is not the Adolf we know and hate. This guy is goofy, charming, and glides through life with a childlike naivete. A real dork. So what I like about this is a couple of things. One, we we make it very clear upon a, you know one sentence, sentence introduction that while this guy looks like you know, one of the great mass murderers of all time. He is really a, his attitude and his character is completely different. Um, 
And that's part of it, that this kid isn't even capable of understanding these big issues that are going on around him in, you know, World War II Germany. Nor, you know, he just looks up to this guy and he sees this guy as uh, sort of a friend because he doesn't have any friends. And he sees him in the way that he would want to see him, not in terms of who he really is. And I think this description does a great job. And this is what character description is all about. Notice that it doesn't say Adolf Hitler with a certain type of mustache and Nazi uniform and, you know, slick down hair. That stuff isn't important. If you've read my book, you know that because I talk about character description. You're not physically describing the character. You're describing their essence, especially for a very important character. Here, the imaginary friend is huge because he pops up throughout the entire script. And at the end, our character has to let go of the imaginary friend. And the script follows that. So again, this is not the Adolf we know and hate. This guy is goofy, charming, and glides through life with a childlike naivete, a real dork. Um, so I like that. Also, notice how the uh, way that he's introduced. Voice, off screen. Poor Jojo, what is wrong? And Jojo turns around. We introduce Hitler. Then the next line of dialogue is... It's a, it doesn't say voice anymore. It says Hitler. So when we don't know who's behind Jojo or who's behind us and we're not seeing it, it's just a voice. And then we transition that. The next time that you write his name in dialogue, he is now Hitler. I guess you could have written Hitler to begin with. And this is sort of a... I think that this is the right way it's done. If we don't know who it is, if it's just a menacing voice or a pleasant voice or a woman's voice, or a, but we're purposely not seeing it, the voice comes in first and that's the design of the scene, then you don't tell us who it is because it's mysterious, but then you change it over as soon as we introduce the character. So that's a uh, little lesson we can take from, from uh, Jojo Rabbit, which I highly recommend you read if you can get to it. I'm going to take a look at a couple of pages from The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea by Mark Hogan. Here's the logline on this, and I know there's a lot of German stuff this week, because this is also a World War II script. And again, why do these scripts make the blacklist? Well, because they're beloved and appreciated. It doesn't mean that they get made. Um, it means that Hollywood really respects the writer, and that these writers have delivered a great screenplay and have shown themselves to be amazing. Does not mean that uh, they necessarily get purchased or optioned, or even if they, you know, you hear that something's optioned and these producers are attached. Please remember that does not, and I have no, I don't know these writers. I don't know their, um, I haven't talked to their reps or anything, so I don't know whether or not they've earned money off these scripts, but neither set up at a studio to my knowledge. And, you know, again, it's hard to be a writer um, not making money off it because, you know, you got to come to LA and then do a bunch of meetings and things like that for potential jobs, but nobody's put money in your pocket to do that. You know, that's tough. Um, it's, it's not easy to, to survive as a writer like that. And these, the fact that the studios have so many less assignments than they used to and buy so much less material and production companies don't have money to hand to people means that it's a lot, that all comes down on the writer. And I think that's sad. Um, that's one of the biggest changes that all writers will be facing over the next 20 years. Because we have now a generation of writers who is not coddled by the system, um, you know, in their development. And what I mean by that is that once upon a time, a writer could come to Hollywood, come up with an idea, you know, sell an idea or a pitch and, you know, deliver it. And maybe they don't do such a great job on it. But if they made 50 grand off the sale or 75 or 100 grand off the sale or even 20 grand from a production company, 
you know, that keeps you alive. It keeps you out here. It keeps you in an apartment. It keeps gas in your car. It keeps all that stuff so that you can move on to the next. And I see that a lot, I, or I've seen that a lot with, you know, writers where early on I read something of theirs and I don't like it. I'm not that impressed by it in, in terms of from a production company position. Uh, meaning that, you know, when I was an executive, I'd read scripts um, that maybe I'd come across before or I'd see that a writer got a job and I'd be like, wow, that guy's last script sucked. I was really unimpressed by it, meaning that it just didn't, you know, sort of blow my mind. And then they, they learn over time. The writers are writers always get better their first five years working, you know, solely as a writer where they're not trying to squeeze in 45 minutes between the day job and the, you know, kids, you know, and all that stuff. Um, all right, so let me just uh, read a couple. I think I'm just going to read like uh, two pages from this script. And, okay, let's see. I'm going to take one little piece and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some more, I think. A detective here has found, uh, a detective is at a crime scene here. Quinn's POV, a blurry out of focus image. He raises the glasses to his face and a grotesque unnatural sight comes into focus. The body of a boy. Oh, do you know what? I screwed this one up because I didn't read the sentence before it. Um, all right, I'm starting over here. Quinn blows on the inside of his thick horn-rimmed glasses, polishes them with his shirt sleeve. Quinn's POV, a blurry out-of-focus image. He raises the glasses to his face and a grotesque unnatural sight comes into focus. The body of a boy, 15. The boy's head and shoulders are wedged into a fishing hole on the ice. His torso and legs stick straight up in the air. Okay, so right here, we're playing with a perspective. Now, Quinn's not the hero of the movie, but he's certainly the subject of this scene. We're seeing it through his eyes. He's a detective. And here, the writer does a really nice job by writing Quinn's point of view, and we've set up his glasses, that he takes them off and he polishes them. We see this blurry image, and then he puts the glasses on, and we see this horrific thing. And it it's a punch right there um, and it's also talking about camera work which is why I'm talking about this right now because it is suggesting through a character's perspective what the camera work is and it gives us this but it doesn't and, and that's the kind of thing that you can do um, if you're talking about what the hero can see and what you know things coming into focus and out of focus here they give him a pair of glasses in order to create that impact of we're going to see sort of a piece of this horrific thing and then we're going to see another piece of it and what is this thing and he puts on the glasses and ta-da it is this grotesque image of legs sticking out of an ice fishing hole a dead body um so i think that's that's really well done here and that's something that you are free to do you're free to write quinn's pov that's capitalized and then a blurry out of focus image capitalized I'm going to talk a little bit about capitalizations here because there's a lot of them and some of them I think are you know the thing with capitalizations I've never I've never heard a great answer or something that I'm satisfied by well this is the rule that you use but I think that you know less is more please stick with that less is more unless you're setting up with something for something later um, so we have uh, so we have this scene on the ice and then we cut to interior. And by the way, writing cut to is like a production script thing. Don't do that, because when I said we cut to, that's not in the script. That's something people put into production scripts, and it takes up space. And you get 100 of those back, you get back like a page or two. Um, so don't do it. Okay. Interior, small room, night. 
superimposed, December 10th, 1942. A small windowless room, a seemingly normal family of three eating dinner, ignoring the harsh yellow lighting and a strange intermittent creak and groan, capitalized. The man, 50, passes the salt to a boy, 15, whose back and blonde hair is visible. Suddenly the room shakes, another creak and groan. The lights flicker and buzz. The woman smiles at the boy. Tell us about where you grew up. Boy, British accent. In Rotterdam, ma'am. That's the south part of Yorkshire. Man, where, what was it like there? Boy, I grew up in a cottage by the River Don. My father was an iron welder. That's his main work there. Or that's the main work there. Woman, would you care for bread, Carl? Boy, yes, ma'am. Man, what kind of bread? Boy, well, I... Man sits forward, his hand on the cloth-covered bowl. Boy, continued. I don't understand. Suddenly, two officers in black SS uniforms uh, storm into the room, arguing with the blonde, blue-eyed boy, Carl Demmer, 15. That's capitalized. Officer in German with subtitles. You must not hesitate, Carl. I wasn't sure what to say. I didn't have a choice at home. Officer, anyone from England would know. Dolly out on the windowless room to reveal that it is a stage inside the steel hull of a submarine. Interior U-boat night. German officers in uniforms busy at work. Okay, so here we have a couple of things happening, and let's talk about them. We notice that we've jumped in space and time. Um, we have this investigation of a murder. Uh, we'll find out that it's in America. I just want to look real quickly. Do we know that it... Yeah, it does tell us at the top of that ice fishing dead body scene. It says Lake Above, uh, or Frozen Lake Ambrose, Maryland. So we, we know where we are then. But here we're jumping back in time. Now... In my book, I say, tell it in sequential order, mainly to make it easier on yourself. Now, I love this script overall. I will say this. The first couple of pages, I was really confused because it literally jumps from um, 1943 in Maryland back to Germany, 1942. And then it cuts back to, I think, like, uh, then it cuts back to Germany, 1939. That's our next scene. And then we have another scene back in 1939. And then it cuts all the way back to 1943. And very quickly we go from Germany, 1943, to Britain, 1943, and then to America, 1943. And wow, is that a lot to absorb. Um, now again, if, you, if this script was sent out by the people that this script was sent out by, the, the top representation... I, I would I wouldn't question it. I'd, I'd I would have to read it a second time, which I sort of did to to organize all this stuff because I don't know what the hell's going on. I, I'm not even sure that I figured out that these guys were detectives in that opening scene or what they were investigating. Or you know, it comes back later. And that, by the way, is a totally arbitrary decision. This script would have worked if it was organized in sequential order. Because by the way, the movie does not do this. The movie does not do this. It does not jump all over the place in space and time. It is relatively straightforward once they get all the information out there. What the writer's struggling with here is how do I set up this thing? Um, I'm going to read the log line to you. I, I forget. Did I read it? I'm going to read it again. During World War II, a 15-year-old German boy is sent to America to spy for the fatherland by joining a politically connected family as an English war orphan. Tension mounts when the boy gets a chance to assassinate President Roosevelt. So that's the idea, that we have this sleeper... Um, agent being sent to America by Germany 
and he is brought in, you know, I, I guess at the time a lot of people took in English war orphans in America, and he gets placed in the home of a senator uh, and has to pretend like he's English even though he's German. And how all that is set up is, you know, in the script, and it's a lot to get this kid from Germany to show his training and then to get him here uh, into the United States by the end of Act One, which is what this movie does. Um, so, you know, the thing here is that it's, I would suggest that this is too difficult. And if you're doing, you know, the, the interesting thing is this is the difference between sort of writing a movie or and editing a movie. Because if all this stuff is already there, I think you could edit this the way that it's written. I just would definitely not recommend it. Now, again, this writer, his representation looked at it, they read through it, and it's so spectacular, this script, that they said, you know, it may, by the way, representation doesn't necessarily jump in in terms of development unless they need to, um, and most don't. That's not their job. It's not their job to develop your material. Um, but, you know, here I, I was genuinely confused by what the hell was going on in these first five pages, and if you're an unrepresented writer who has really confusing stuff in those couple of pages... I guarantee you are slamming doors on yourself left and right because it, you know, it. they're not going to get to the end of the script. People don't do that. They only get to the end of the script if you take them there. And this is not advisable to have this much jumping around in this many pages. Again, a filmmaker could do it in the editing room. You're really free to do anything in the editing room because at that point we have the visuals in order to tie this stuff together so we have a better sense of time and space. Here, that doesn't exist. All right, let me talk about some things that happen here um so we cut to interior small room night and then we write superimposed december 10th 1942 because we see the room that's what you're putting you're not putting it over black the december 10th 1942 you're we we have the room and in one image we'll see superimposed but the interior small room comes first um let's look at a couple of things here there's the creak and groan that are capitalized the lights flicker and buzz. I'm going to say that that, and this stuff is capitalized. Why? It's important because it's setting up the other. It's setting up that this there's something not right here. Because we're watching this very traditional dinner. We, we see this, this older couple and they're offering this boy bread. And they're asking him about where he's from. But there's something off here. The thing that's off here is the creaking, the groaning, and the flickering of the lights. Um, so it's okay to capitalize creak and groan there. Um, but uh, notice that he is referred to as boy in this scene. Now, this is our hero in the movie, Carl, the, the boy. Um, but he's referred to as boy uh, until the, the, the scene is broken or the stage is broken um, when the two officers burst in and it says, arguing with the blonde, blue-eyed boy, Carl Demmer, 15, and the Carl Demmer is capitalized. So that's a choice also, that even though he's here, we're not going to introduce him as Carl Demmer, 15. You could have. This is a choice that's made that they're just going to play this scene out, um, or half of this scene, and then refer to him as Carl. But of course, every time he speaks from then on, he is Carl. Um, here's another thing that we have. Officer, in German with subtitles. You must not hesitate. And Carl says, I wasn't sure what to say. Um, this is interesting. Oh, let's talk about this for a second. 
Okay, so under officer, it says in German with subtitles. Now, this is something a lot of writers deal with because if you're writing anything international, you'll have writer, you know, characters talking in different languages. Here, um, we specify that it's in German with subtitles, which I don't think you need to do if your entire movie, if your entire movie is set in Germany, then you don't need to write that. Um, that's the kind of thing that is a decision for the filmmakers. Do they shoot it in German? Do they shoot it in English? Do they, you know, uh, and they always shoot it in English, of course. We even had the movie, there was a submarine movie that came out a couple weeks ago. I think it was called Phantom um, with Ed Harris and David Duchovny. And that entire movie uh, was all Russian. It was all Russian characters. And a lot of reviews pointed out that it was kind of odd because it's all Russian characters speaking with English Midwest accents. They never reference the fact that they're Russian. And that's a decision that the filmmakers made or that the, the financiers agreed to. Uh, and whether or not that's right or not has nothing to do with your script. So here, officer, in German with subtitles, you must not hesitate. Carl says, I wasn't sure what to say. I didn't have a choice at home. Officer, anyone from England would know. So Carl right here is being trained. That's the idea, that he's being trained to answer questions and so forth. But what we're looking at is the in German with subtitles. What the writer does here is he italicizes, you must not hesitate. And Carl's response is, I wasn't sure what to say. I didn't have a choice at home. That's italicized also. And then the officer says, anyone from England would know. That's italicized also. So you're setting up here in German with subtitles on the first bit of dialogue where you're, you're slipping into this other language. And then you're just italicizing the dialogue. You don't have to write that underneath every line that is said. And of course, it's important, or you can get away with that kind of thing here, because in this script, we're jumping from England or from Germany to then England, and we have a scene here where they're training him to be British. So you wanna, you wanna sort of move back and forth between these languages, it becomes incredibly important, and his own ability to use the English language is important in this script. Um, but I like that, that the, the first time it's introduced, and then you have it in italics, and then we assume the next time that we see something in italics, which is the next line and the line after that, it's still in italics, and that way we know that's the way that you are signaling to the reader, hey, this is in the other language, and you know that you're and that way you don't have to lose a line because remember every if you were to just write in german every time you might write that 50 times there might be 50 lines of dialogue in this script which isn't that much i mean it's a couple of pages there might only be a couple pages in german you're going to lose an entire page of screenplay by writing in german with subtitles every time and that's the kind of junk that just gunks up a script the less the better that's a great way of doing it oh here's the next thing i want to talk about so he says anyone from england would know dolly out of the windowless room to reveal that it is a stage capitalized inside the steel hull of a submarine dolly out how can you write that that's a camera direction it is um that now this is an interesting thing about this script this writer uses a lot of camera direction here's what he and you know i'm going to point out some other things here um or another place where he does it where i don't agree with it you really want to limit your camera direction. Now, the reason that he can get away with a dolly out here, the other way you could, the other thing that people usually do is they'll say push in or pull out. And the reason you need to do that is because you've set up an artifice, you've set up a fake situation, 
And then we're pulling out to say, oh, this is all a stage, essentially. I mean, it's sort of like having an argument between a father and daughter, and then we pull out and we see, well, they're on a stage. So they are no longer father and daughter. They're actors on a stage in a theater. And we get all this new information from the pullout. Um, in this case, we, we have this dinner situation. But what we're setting up is family or people having dinner together. We pull out to see, no, we're on a submarine. So by writing Dolly out, again, he could have said pull out. And it would have been the same thing. I think Dolly Out, it definitely grabbed my eye. Like, wait a minute. Can you? And it, most filmmakers or writers do not use the technical camera direction. Um, stage is capitalized, though. Dolly Out in the windows this room to reveal that it is a stage inside of the steel hull of a submarine. So stage is capitalized. I don't think you need to put it there, actually. I, I think that's certainly a writer's choice. But again, I'm suggesting if you get to the point where you say, do I need this or not? Don't do it. Don't do it. Because what we then find are writers who have 58 things capitalized on every page and every item is capitalized. And really that gets annoying. And here's what else it does. It makes the reader ignore your capitalizations. And you are doing it for punch or you are doing it for to set up something. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more here because there's another thing that that is here's a sentence and let me just read it so we're now in a cemetery 1939 young Carl Demmer 11 so it's that's capitalized because he's essentially a different actor it's a different and that's maybe how you can think about it is it a different actor um, in this case it is we're going we're cutting back to his father's funeral a younger version of the boy on the boat wears a black shirt holds a model plane and stands before a coffin wrapped in a Nazi flag Model plane and Nazi flag, by the way, are capitalized. His mother capitalized Hilda Demmer, a beautiful blonde, Hans Carl, a pretty wreath, capitalized. Let's take a look at this real quickly. Because he capitalizes a lot. He capitalizes model plane, Nazi flag, uh, the mom's name, which, you know, character, you don't have a choice. Uh, and then wreath. Okay. Um, I'm the, the model plane... Oh, let's see. Great. They're, they're changing out the... Uh, this is going to get loud for a little bit. Sorry. Okay. Um, so the, the thing here is that the Nazi flag, um, I don't think that's important. I, I just don't. Like, I don't think that it needs to be capitalized. Because what's important in this sentence is the model plane. Why is the model plane important? Because his father was a pilot. He's given this plane as sort of a... Um, a thing and then later on he is given a plane by his surrogate father by the senator he's given a plane as a as a toy basically um, he admires it and then he goes oh you can have it and later by the way so not only do we have this this visual motif of the plane and a motif is something that comes back multiple times um, that stands for something sometimes sometimes it doesn't stand for anything but uh, actually, I'll get into motifs at a different time. It usually stands for something or means something. Uh, an example of which would be in the Godfather movies, there's always oranges whenever uh, somebody's about to die. Um, whether or not, again, that's something that was, well, I'm sure that was in the script. All right. So the thing about the model plane, though, is that not only do we, we set it up here, we then have another scene where he's given another plane, and then at another point, 
when the Jewish maid in the senator's house is suspicious and catches him doing something in his room, he picks up the plane and it points out the uh, the wings of which are sharp enough to use as a blade. So he literally picks up this plane as a weapon about to kill her. He doesn't, but um, I think that that's you know a reason that we want to point out he gets a model plane right here. Um, but I don't think Nazi flag is important. I wouldn't capitalize it. And the wreath, I don't know what the importance of the wreath is. Maybe I missed it later on, but for now, unless that comes back later, unless we're gonna do something with that, or we're going to have a couple of different wreaths come in at a very specific points, why capitalize it? I, you know, again, these things are choices. I just don't recommend doing it because the thing that we wanna focus in on is model plane, because otherwise you could totally forget about it. And that's what capitalization is about. It's about reminding somebody of what it is that they're going to be, um, what's gonna come later. And that, that's why we capitalize the names of the characters. Now, here we have a thing. Close in on epitaph on gravestone. Okay, in loving memory of Hans Diemer, Luftwaffe uh, pilot, uh, shot down over Poland with courage and honor, he gave his life for God, Fuhrer, and Fatherland. Close on epitaph. You could have just written epitaph on gravestone. You didn't have to write close on. Um, here's another interesting thing that the writer does, though, because there's a couple of different pieces of music that are used. Now, this is a period piece, so... And we're moving from place to place, so I'm going to suggest that there's reason to do it. And again, I'm sure you're told, well, don't use specific songs and don't do that kind of stuff. And that's true, usually. But here's how the writer uses it. Um, Wagner's Act One um, Overture plays while young Carl places the wreath on the coffin. He glances at his mother, tears in his eyes. She motions for Carl to come to her side. Carl looks at the model plane in hand, debating its fate, and places it inside of the empty coffin. Now here he capitalizes empty coffin. Why? Because later on when Carl goes to the home of the senator for the first time, we see that there's an empty crib in a room. And he capitalizes that, the empty crib. So we, we're setting up another motif, which is this empty, you know, this huge hole in our lives. And that's the reason, by the way, that they requested an orphan because their baby died. And the other thing about that is that we're setting up the thing between the father and the son um, and this big emptiness in their life. That's what Carl has in his life. That's what the senator has in his life. And that's why they sort of get to bond in a way that these other characters, some of the other characters don't. Um, and that's what makes it difficult for him to do what he's basically being set up to do, which is kill the president when he comes. That he's becoming Americanized, that he likes this family, that all these things, all the emotions that come into it, because in the first act, we set him up as a cold-blooded trained killer. And there's even a, there's a great killing scene that happens. But here's the thing. So we're playing this music, and then we cut to interior uh, Demmer apartment, living room, night, close on gramophone, continuing to play Wagner's uh, Parsifal. Uh, pan across the living room of a modest middle-class apartment. A portrait of Adolf Hitler is over the sofa. So, a portrait of Adolf Hitler worn uh, over the worn sofa. Interestingly, Adolf Hitler is capitalized there. I wouldn't do it. I, I don't think that's important. Um, but here's what we want to track, which is, well, why did they play music at the funeral? This is an interesting thing, because the writer wants to have this piece of music there at the funeral, but... You know, he's not having it played live. He's not have. It's not like we show that there's an orchestra playing it. Um, what he's doing is he's introducing it as a way to tie these scenes together because we. Th this is um, diegetic sound. 
I believe we're getting into the idea of diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Diegetic sound is stuff that happens on the soundtrack, whereas, uh, you know, non-diegetic sound is just music that is overlaid, either score, popular music, whatever it is. It's not connected. The, the characters aren't hearing it. So in, the, in this moment at the funeral, it seems like inappropriate because you don't write about non-diegetic music. However, he ties it from scene to scene by making it diegetic in the opening of the next scene, which allows him to get away with using a specific piece of music. Again, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, you're always gonna wanna look at your scene transitions, and in a way, he sneaks it in by, by creating that scene transition there. Um, and using a piece of music. So it's a way to sneak in and break a rule that otherwise you should probably, you know, again, you can do this a couple of times in a script. I just don't recommend it. Although in a period script, but from a period where, from a period where it's relevant, um, I think you can do it more. But you know, if this was just any script in the 40s or 50s, would you mention the big band music or mention that it's uh, in the mood or one of those really popular songs? You could, but there's part of part of their, there's a reason here that they're mentioning specific things. Because at one point he makes a comment like to the daughter of the senator, who's sort of his love interest, because they're not siblings, you know. Um, he makes a comment to her like, "Don't you like anything besides Jew, Jewish music and black music?" Because we're we're dealing with the fact that a lot of the music that they're playing is from Jews, and there's a uh, black uh, band playing at one of the events that they're going to. Um, so again, because you have a Nazi uh, character and it, the, the music itself is creating an issue with him that he wants to point out and that creates a moment of suspicion in the daughter's mind or it's sort of, it's one of the many things that happens where we wonder, and I don't think she picks up on it here, but it's one of the many things where it's like, is this gonna be the giveaway? Or is it one of the things that leads the characters to realize and to put this information together that he is a Nazi sleeper agent? Um, so that's a tricky way that you can insert a specific song into it. But if it's just kids at a diner and it's 1963 or five and they're playing the Beach Boys because it's the Beach Boys and that's the kind of music you think that they need to play at the diner, no, you don't get to do that. Um, you could write you know, 60s music or Beach Boys in the background to get a sense of what this world is, but you wouldn't necessarily need to refer to a specific song. Now, again, if you want to go ahead and do it once, but it probably shouldn't even pop up in every script, let alone more than twice in a script. So you want to do it once, do it once. Other than that, don't do it. Um, here's the other thing. Close on gramophone, continuing to play Wagner's uh, Parsifal. Pan across the living room. Do you need the pan here? No. You don't need it. And this is the kind of thing that, again, happens... I, I, again, I think that this writer did go a little bit overboard with the camera direction. But the important thing to recognize is that it stops. I don't think you need to write close on gramophone. You could just write on gramophone, continuing to play, and it means the same thing. Um, or close on gramophone instead of close. See, and there, there a little confusion happened there. Like, because um, close means that it's just a shot of a gramophone. But if you just wrote on gramophone, it means the same thing. We're in close up, um, and that's our transition. And pan across the living room to show this character's world. I, I just don't think it's necessary. If you want to use it once, use it once. Because the important thing to remember is that this writer, while he does use a lot of uh, a lot of camera direction, a lot of means like it might happen five or six or seven or ten other times in the entire script. 
It is not something that he's doing in every single scene. And, you know, again, I would suggest if you're going to do this kind of stuff, then it has to be relevant. It has to, it has to show how you're coming in and out of scenes. And that's where he places it here. So it makes it a little more appropriate. Um, and then the next scene starts off angle on polished dress shoes under the table. And then we have his mother talking. Um, again, I don't know why you'd write angle on polished dress shoes beneath the table. You, you could write polished dress shoes beneath the table. That's okay. Um, and that like gets the idea of the same shot. Although I don't know why we'd have that shot. It's not important. It's not like she takes off one of the shoes and stabs somebody with it. So again, uh, I'm going to leave it here because there's, there's more that I see here, but I think I've I'm at 55 minutes. So the script is called Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. It is wonderful. I love the writing. I think it's it's really vivid. And I think that it's the kind of thing where, again, it's a writer showing that they have that filmmaker's vision, that this, that this writer could eventually graduate to direct or direct this script. But you want to be really careful about it. You want to pick your poisons. And I hope by showing you some of the examples here where it's necessary and somewhere it's a choice, and somewhere it's just kind of random, um, you get a better sense of how you use these tools. All right, that's all for today. Again, in March, you can have me read your script, 299 bucks. Go to officialscreenwriting.com on the services page, make payment for a rewrite, email me the script, bam, you're done. By the way, the rewrite is 299, that's why I'm suggesting uh, you go to the rewrite thing. Um, and uh, yeah, check out my book, Starter Screenplay, leave a review on iTunes for the podcast or on Amazon for the book. I'll have a new show for you next week.